Hi, everyone, and thank you all for being here today. At this time, I welcome our Master of Ceremonies, Lakeisha James. She's a corporate event planner, set designer, mentor, author, and Atlanta chapter leader for World Woman Conference and Awards. Welcome, Lakeisha James. Thank you, Gigi. And I'd like to welcome everyone to the global virtual panel of Steelverse survivors. I am Lakeisha James, your master of ceremonies for the evening. We have a fantastic event lined up with some amazing moms sharing their story on stillbirth. We also have a word from a father on losing his child to stillbirth. Stillbirth is a topic not spoken about, but tonight we will change that. Tonight's event will consist of a speaker's roundtable discussion. On behalf of Regeline Gigi Sabat and Life Service Center of America, again, we welcome you. I would like to introduce you to our host, Regeline Gigi Sabat. Gigi is a motivational keynote speaker, five times best-selling author, life coach, first-generation Haitian American, the host of Walk With Me podcast on JRQ-TV, financial expert and CEO and founder of Life Service Center of America, LLC which is also endorsed by Les Brown. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our host, Rajaline Gigi Sabat. Thank you, thank you. And now at this time, I welcome our keynote speaker, Lakeisha James. And again, she's the corporate event planner, set designer, mentor, author, and Atlanta chapter leader for World Woman Conference and Awards. Welcome, Lakeisha James. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Regeline, for allowing me to be the keynote speaker and allowing me this platform to share my story. Actually, I've shared my story, a little snippet of it, but tonight I'll go into more detail about it. So my story happens in 2012. I got pregnant, of course. Pregnancy went great. And then, you know, all of a sudden we would say December, I want to say maybe December 23rd, 22nd, I didn't feel my baby move anymore. And usually my baby is very active. You know, she keeps me up at night. She'd be giving me those, those soccer kicks and all of that. But I didn't feel her move. You know, I was shaking my belly. I would hit it and all that. And she just didn't move. So then, of course, I was taking a bath one night. And of course, my fiance at the time, I said, hey, I felt her move. He was like, well, you know, that's good. And he was like, well, you know, she's probably just wanted to enter the world. And I said, you may be right. And of course, I'm a mother. I've had a baby before and I've never experienced this before. So, of course, on December 26, I had an appointment and I went to my appointment and, you know, usually they're able to find the heartbeat of my baby. Then they could not. It took them like 10 minutes. Put on a Doppler. They didn't get anything. So me, I'm just like just waiting, you know, just kind of like because I kind of already knew. Um, but waiting. And then, of course, the nurse told me, say, hey, I need you to go over to the hospital. And at that time, it was Rockdale Hospital. So went over to the hospital, still praying, still praying, called my fiance and told him that they're taking me over to the hospital. Well, I need to go to the hospital. They could not find our baby heartbeat. So I went there, you know, the technician came in to do what he do, trying to find the heartbeat. They couldn't find the heartbeat. So then he said, he proceeds to say, so um, we're going to go out and look at this. And then the, the doctor will be back in hand to let you know what's going on. So at that time, my fiance, he was a truck driver. <clears throat> He, you know, he was in Alabama. So I'm like, I'm just praying to God that, that he be here when, you know, they deliver whatever news they have to deliver to us. So God made a way from him to be there. So the doctor came in and told us that our baby had passed. And at that time, you guys have to forgive me because I'm still healing through this. And at that time, I was like, I know God to bring me all those weight for me to lose my baby. And my faith in God, I wasn't upset, but I knew God had a bigger plan for my baby. So we were there. My baby's 
dead inside of me. And my fiance was just there, just consulting me. And I didn't want to give her, I didn't want to have her. I wanted her to stand inside of me. And then of course I had to have her. They gave me a choice. They said, you can either have her through cesarean or you can have her through vaginal birth. And I just did not want to give birth to her. I just want her to be inside of me. So I made a decision to just have a to have a cesarean. I didn't want to take my body through that pain of actually having my baby the natural way. And then, of course, my fiance and I decided not to even spend time with her because I didn't want to see her like that. So then at the last minute before I went into to give birth to her, we decided to spend time with her. So went in, you know, they um, induced labor and all that. So had a cesarean. And it was like, oh, she's so pretty. She's so pretty. And I couldn't even keep my tears from flowing. And then, of course, the way that my baby died, the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck. So, of course, they took me into the recovery. I waited for maybe, I want to say, we waited about 30 minutes to spend time with her. And she came in. She was just beautiful. She was just at peace. And I just held her. You know, I'm trying to like, are you going to wake up? just want you to open your eyes, want you to breathe, want you to smile, want you to cry, just want you to do something so I know that you're okay. She didn't do any of that. She was just still. She was just still. And I'm just looking at her. And then I did notice that she had a hat on, of course. I did notice that her left ear was missing, but I didn't care at that point. I just cared that my baby wasn't there. And I spent so much time with her, nurturing her inside of me, growing that bond with her. And she was gone. And at that time, I knew why God took her from me. He took her back from me. And I'm just looking at her. And then, of course, we had to give her back. They took her away from us. And then, of course, they put me on the floor with newborn babies, which was, I think, was very traumatizing to me as a mother that had just lost her child. I had to hear babies crying. I had to walk because I had just had a cesarean. It was very painful for me and my fiance at that time. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And I just kept crying, still wondering why God, why you took her away from me. But I left out a part before when I was actually, this is my daughter, I'm sorry. When I'm after, um, after I found out that she had passed, I had called my pastor. My pastor was like, I see something great coming from this. And at that time, I didn't want to hear that I had just lost my baby. But at the same time, I didn't blame God because I know God doesn't make any, you know, um, he doesn't make mistakes. He just doesn't. So they came in, the funeral home came to talk to me. They said, well, since your baby's a newborn, we'll go ahead and cremate her for free. I said, okay, great. And at that time I'm like, okay, it's just whatever. So I spent a couple of days in the hospital. Me and my fiance went to actually go to the funeral home and I could not compose myself. I couldn't control myself. And I was asking myself, can I see my baby again? He was like, you probably don't want to see her because she's passed and she just doesn't look the same. But again, I didn't care. My fiance talked me out of wanting to see her. And then, of course, before I was dismissed from the hospital, my fiance went to back to our apartments, remove everything because I had to counsel the baby shower. We had already purchased um, toys for her and everything. And he went home and he forgot one thing. And when I went home, I completely lost it, completely lost it. And it was just, it was just hard. It was just hard. I didn't want to be by myself. I didn't want to stay, stay in the room where we stayed. 
together, me and my baby, where I bonded with her. It was just really hard for me. But I had a supporting family. My fiance, of course, he was there supported. And this is today is the very first time that I really went into detail about my stillbirth. I just want you to know it's not your fault. You got to give yourself time to grieve. This year, actually, my daughter will be 10 years old, December 26th. And as you can see, after 10 years of losing my baby, I'm still trying to get through it. It's not easy at all. She's still my baby, and I know she's my guardian angel. And I just want to bring awareness to stillbirths, because your voice is your superpower. If you impact one person, you've done your job, because it's just like a ripple effect. You impact that person, that person impacts someone else. I just want you to know that there are support groups out here. Everyone that's on this platform tonight has some amazing stories. And some of us will have the same things to say um, for this awareness. But all of us have one thing in common where we lost our child and we're advocating for women that has lost their babies. She's still here. I still celebrate her on her birthday. Her remains sit on my nightstand. I think about the times we shared. I, I mean, I have photos of her. I look at them all the time. It's just a way for me to heal. And the way that I cope is I just give myself time to grieve. As you're saying now, it's been 10 years and I'm still grieving because there's different levels of grieving and different levels of healing. But I just want everyone to know my story. I hope if I hope I've impacted one person. And if you have experiences, there are there is support. There are other couples out here that has experienced the same thing. We all support each other. Just like all these women on this platform tonight, we are we we go through this together. We support each other with this. But thank you much, Gigi, for allowing me to share my story, really going to depth about my story from losing my baby. And I didn't mention to you guys her name is Jossie Lease. She's my baby. She'll be 10 years old this year. And I just thank God for allowing me to, for this platform, because I know if she was here, I wouldn't be able to impact the masses like I do. He knew the path that he had me on. And this is what I do. I encourage women. I inspire women. I uplift women, not even only women, just the world. And the platform that I am on today, I would not have been able to care for my child on this platform. So I just thank God. He has all the glory. And this is what my daughter, Jocelyn said. She's making an impact in the world. She's not even here, but she's here with me spiritually. And she's my guardian angel. So again, Gigi, thank you so much for allowing me to share my story on this platform today. Thank you, Lakeisha. <sighs> so I got to co-pose myself. I have to introduce the next speaker. Our next speaker is Stacy. Denberg. Stacy is the vice president and co-founder of the Two Degrees Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to impacting stillbirth outcomes in the state of New Jersey. As a mother of stillborn daughter, Stacy has felt the need to turn her tragedy into a purpose. Stacy and her husband, Sean's firstborn daughter, Ryan, Ava, was born sleeping on January 30th, 2014 at 37 weeks gestational age. She has since become an advocate of maternal health, including infertility, maternal mental health, pregnancy, and infant loss, pregnancy after loss, and parenting after loss. Over the past six years, Stacy has been invited speaker at RMA of New Jersey series. The doctor is in the stillbirth management conference through the partnership of maternal and child health of Northern New Jersey, and has testified for the appropriate implementation of the awesome joy stillbirth research and dignity act in Trenton. Her stillbirth story has been featured in New York Fox five, Dr. Manny Alvarez asked Dr. Manny news blog and in Hacks and Sack 
Mediterranean Health Views Magazine. Stacy just recently became a Count the Kicks ambassador for the state of New Jersey. Stacy is a certified special educator and studied behavioral psychology at the Caldwell University. She is currently studying to become a certified bereavement and birthing doula. She also works part-time as an instructional facilitator and a teacher trainer at a specialized school for students with special needs. She is excited to help and educate and empower respected parents and providers about this life-saving campaign. Most importantly, Stacy is a proud mother of two beautiful little girls, her rainbows. She currently resides in New Jersey with her family. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Stacy Denberg. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much, Lakeisha. Um, I appreciate you sharing your story and being so vulnerable. Um, I just want to jump through the computer and give you a big hug. <laughs> um, like Lakeisha said, um, my name is Stacy Dinberg, and I am a stillbirth survivor. Um, let's see, where to begin? Um, pregnancy did not come easy for my husband and I. Um, we struggled with infertility for over two years. Um, in 2020, I'm sorry, 2012, I suffered from an ectopic pregnancy that resulted in the loss of one of my fallopian tubes as well as the loss of my child. Um, but I always dreamed of becoming a mom <laughs> and I was determined to make that dream come true. Um, with uh, some persistence, courage, and some help from science, I became pregnant through in vitro fertilization. Um, I lived the next 36 weeks of my life in complete I enjoyed every moment of being pregnant. <laughs> um, each pregnancy symptom I experienced was a celebration and every monthly milestone I reached was just a victory for me. Um, unfortunately, our incredible joy quickly turned into immense pain. Um, during my ninth month of pregnancy um, at an ultrasound, I found out that my child's heart was no longer beating. At first, I didn't completely register um, what had just been told to me. I asked the doctor, so wait, she's dead? Um, I don't think I realized that something like that could happen, um, especially in this day and age. And nobody, nobody ever said to me that this would be a possible outcome. So I didn't quite understand what had really happened. Uh, of course, my doctor started rambling about protocols and standards of care, uh, throwing medical terms at me rather than really kind of offering me any type of support or empathy. He left me in the room to make my phone calls with really no explanation and no reason of what had happened. I remember calling my husband in pure hysterics and he really couldn't even understand what I was saying. And I finally just shouted, she's gone, she's gone. Um, later, I arrived to the hospital with my husband to deliver my baby that was no longer, no longer living. Um, I was sent to the labor and delivery floor, which seemed like a cruel joke. Um, the nurses kind of bombarded me with questions. Um, they asked me how I would deliver the baby. Would I hold the baby? Would I agree to an autopsy? Did I want to name her? Um, but I was in no mind, frame of mind to, to answer any of these questions. Um, we were scared, devastated, confused, completely overwhelmed, and frankly, in shock. <laughs> um, 
because I have a background in psychology, I asked to speak with a social worker, um, but at the time the hospital was understaffed and there was nobody available to speak with me. On January 30th, 2014, at 10.50 p.m., my daughter, Ryan Eva, was born silently. You could have heard a pin drop in the delivery room. The silence was just painfully deafening. At first, I declined to hold my daughter and to see her. I was just scared. I was petrified. Um, but a beautiful nurse changed my mind after she told me that my daughter was exceptionally beautiful. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> Ryan Ava was perfect in every way. A true angelic vision, vision that just took our breath away. Ryan had her dad's nose and she had my dark curly hair. She was a real full-term baby. Our stunning baby girl. A social worker finally came to, to visit us the following evening. And she gave me my daughter's hand and footprints, a list of local funeral homes, a book that I could barely read because my eyes were so swollen from crying. She told me that the hospital was going to send me a letter to invite me to a support group. But there were many things that the social worker did not tell me. She didn't tell me that my daughter Ryan was one out of 24,000 babies born still in the US annually, and that I was far from alone. She didn't tell me that my marriage would suffer and that couples who experience a stillbirth are at particularly high risk of separation and or divorce. She didn't tell me how to deal with the family or friends who would avoid me for months because they just didn't know how to handle the situation. She didn't know, she didn't tell me how the topic of stillbirth is still so socially taboo and that even the medical community would have difficulty communicating it with me. She didn't tell me about the flashbacks I would have or the panic attacks that I would suffer. She didn't tell me about all the work I would miss or that I would be laid off for experience, for exceeding my allowed time off. She didn't tell me about the severe anxiety I would experience during subsequent pregnancies. And she didn't tell me about the tens of thousands of dollars I would spend on mental health care. The last thing that she didn't tell me was that I would spend the rest of my life honoring my daughter, memorializing her, and advocating for women who suffered the same tragic fate. The year after my daughter's birth was one of the hardest of my life. Depression doesn't even really begin to describe the sadness I felt. Some days I, it was difficult for me to get out of bed. I felt responsible for my daughter's death and I was angry at myself for not being able to save her. There were times I didn't wanna continue living without my daughter. I lost faith, hope, and there didn't really seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. I desperately searched for answers of why my baby died and why this happened to me and how I could get support but at the time there wasn't much available. I just felt so alone. Another challenging time was when I became pregnant again. <laughs> a crippling anxiety overtook my entire existence for nine full months. 
I was mentally brainwashed by my harsh past to think that I wasn't going to be bringing this baby home. I felt robbed of the blissful yet ignorant experiences that went along with pregnancy. But with the support of an amazing uh, medical team, um, trained mental health professionals and amazing nurses, um, some of the faith that I had lost in the medical community was restored. Um, they taught me how to advocate for myself and my unborn child by asking questions and becoming educated by living a he healthy lifestyle. I learned about an amazing scientifically proven stillbirth prevention method called Count the Kicks. That was a complete game changer for me. This method teaches women to monitor the movements of their baby and to speak up if they notice a change. Counting my baby's kicks in the third trimester really helped ease so much of my anxiety. Once my rainbow was born, I often found myself using the term bittersweet to describe the experience of caring, caring for a newborn after loss. With each happy first and milestone met by my newborn, an uninvited wave of sadness entered my head. I remember one time breaking down when I first gave my baby a, a bath. My mother said to me, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And at the joy, the joy that I was feeling at that moment was bullied away by the harsh truth that I would never be able to bathe my first baby. And then I would feel guilty for being sad <laughs> and for ruining my rainbow's first bath. The trauma of my stillbirth um, continues to affect me in different ways. Now I am a mother of two little girls, ages four and five, and I find challenges um, and, and difficulty with leaving my children. I have consistent catastrophic thoughts that the worst is gonna happen. I'm overprotective, I'm a bit controlling, <laughs> and I always feel guilty for viewing my family as incomplete, like a broken puzzle. Sometimes I feel like I have to act like a normal mom, someone who hasn't experienced the trauma of loss. And it can be truly exhausting. There are days when I don't want to go to work and it's hard to be a good wife and to be a good mother. Suffering a stillbirth is truly a lifelong journey. Our grief never goes away. It's something that is always there. We learn to manage the sadness and find ways to build an alternate life. The past six years or so have consisted of me accepting my situation, learning how to appropriately cope with my grief, and acquiring the skills to live this new life that I have been given. My true healing, though, began once I was able to heal, help other women and families navigate stillbirth. Speaking about my journey and educating others provided me with the hope I was searching for. I found peace in creating a legacy for my daughter, despite how short her life was. Since the stillbirth of my daughter, I have been dedicated to telling her story, spreading pregnancy and infant loss awareness and advocating for the empowerment of pregnant people. Um, shortly after I, I lost Ryan, I met another lost mom and together we created the Two Degrees Foundation. Um, the foundation aims to create stillbirth awareness, empower expectant mothers, educate the community, lend peer support to bereaved parents, and to advocate for positive change um, in memory of our children lost. 
Like Lakeisha said, I recently became Account the Kicks ambassador for the state of New Jersey. I was so impressed with the amazing work that this foundation was doing that I just had to become a part of it um, and to help them save babies' lives because that's what they do. They help save babies' lives. Thankfully, um, it, a lot has changed in the Stolbuth community compared to eight years ago. There are far more support options, awareness, public attention, and advocacy groups that work towards the positive changes that impact stillbirth outcomes. But there is still so, so much more to be done. Um, I'm just gonna give you some facts because I think education is super important and um, knowledge is going to be the thing that helps us get through this. Um, stillbirth continues to be one of the most understudied and underfunded maternal health issues in the US. Approximately 65 babies die each day. Um, it remains the number one cause of fetal and infant death the annual number far exceeds the number of deaths among children ages 0 to 14 from preterm from pre birth, SIDS, accidents, guns, fires, and the flu combined. Yet, as a nation, we continue to discuss and campaign for safety and prevention me measures of these other causes and ignore the topic of stillbirth. Stillbirth rates have risen over the past few years and continue to rise with the onset of COVID-19. This is why the individuals here today advocate for positive change and awareness. Brian matters. Our babies matter. And stillbirth prevention matters. Both the Two Degrees Foundation and Count the Kicks is supporting a national stillbirth improvement legislation called the SHINE Act, that would better help understand why stillbirths occur and how to prevent them. This bipartisan bill would provide enhanced data collection measures, as well as fun research and education opportunities. At times, it's hard to think that if I knew the things that I know now about empowerment and advocacy, that maybe I would have been able to save my daughter, a whirlwind of what ifs haunt me each and every day. But I have chosen to focus this life altering grief into a lifelong mission of hope. Thank you again for this wonderful opportunity. I hope that I've provided you with some new knowledge and insight. And please feel free to reach out with me with any questions, concerns, or comments. Um, I'd love to, to be a support to anyone in any way that I can. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you, Stacy. I support you. You know that. Our next speaker Ooh, it's Anna Vick. Anna Vick. <clears throat> is the co-director of Awareness for Push for Empower Pregnancy and a Mother of Three, Always Missing One, whose traumatic experience with two miscarriages and her middle son, Owen, unexpected stillbirth in 2015, have called her to join the fight to end preventable stillbirths. As a UCLA psychology major with experience in television production, Anna enjoys leading discussion rooms on Clubhouse and Empower Pregnancy Club that she founded for Push to connect with the lost families, expectant parents, and medical providers. She has joined the community of vocal lost parents on IG as Still My Son, where she helps break the stigma of silence surrounding loss and interviews other bereaved parents about their experience. 
By amplifying the stillbirth crisis, which has hap- which can happen to anyone, she hopes to create an urgent outcry for improved standards for care for everyone. She promotes change through legislative experts, including stillbirth tax credits and proposal of bills targeting stillbirth prevention and bereavement care. She is relentless in her determination to end stillbirth and improve maternity care because of the rampant number of families like her own that continues to be wrecked by the failure of our medical system. Through our country has a long way to go, developing protocols to prevent stillbirth. It's critical that we are not silent or remain still on this issue. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Anna Vick. Thank you so much. As she mentioned, my name's Anna Vick. I am the mother of three. I always mention that. I think that's something that people wonder about when you lose a child, if you stop counting them and um, if you should even mention them. And of course, I'm here to tell you, you should. My son, uh, my middle son, Owen Nathaniel Vick, is always going to be my son. And that's actually why my account is called Still My Son. I uh, make it a point to bring him up any way I can. And lately I've had the privilege of doing so as an advocate for change for stillbirth prevention. And I just wanna go back, I guess, to the beginning of our lost story, like everyone else here. It was just a beautiful, perfect pregnancy. My second, I had a miscarriage before him, but I had no expectations of anything going wrong. Um, the pregnancy was just like the first. Uh, I had a few things here and there, but you know, I had good care and I had no reasons to be worried. And there were a few times where I felt a little different in the pregnancy towards the end. I started to feel a little bit weak. I told my doctor and he kind of wrote it off as maybe my iron was low. I just take some more iron. You'll be fine. I actually ended up quitting my job though, because I did feel like I was almost faint. Um, And in that moment, I had no clue, like there was even a thing called stillbirth. I didn't have any idea that my boy could be in danger. So I just went along with, you know, my doctor's recommendations and continue to take care of myself the same way I did for my other pregnancy. Um, Then flash forward to the night that I lost my son. I actually was out all day. I was really busy and I was with my toddler um, doing all the mom things. I thought this might be the last chance to do so much with her, you know, now she's going to have to share me. So I went everywhere from morning uh, library to buying things for her. We went to eat out. Uh, We went to her dance class, you know, so I really didn't sit down. And my son was always very active. I didn't worry about kick counting. It was something that wasn't really mentioned to me as a low risk mother, but also something that I didn't think I needed because he was so active. He would get 10 kicks in like a minute, not even, you know, And so that was back then the information that I had. Now I know that it doesn't matter 10 kicks. It's like, what's your baby's average? What's their normal? Um, If I had realized that I would have probably seen something changing days prior possibly. But I did when I get home from doing all the things I did, it was really late at night. I laid down and I realized he wasn't moving very much at all. And by then it was probably almost 11 PM. So I started to think, well, maybe he's asleep. And so I just sat there trying to count kicks, trying to move him, you know, and I just didn't get anything. And by then my mother's intuition just like freaked out on me, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And I called the ER and they said, just eat a little something, maybe do another kick counts for like another two hours and come in if you still feel um, like something's wrong. And so I did that. And you know, I didn't do the full time actually. I just ate some deli turkey. I was like, there's no way I'm gonna, you know eat a meal here. I'm freaking out. 
So I just did a few more kick counts and I was like, no, there really isn't any movements. Um, so I went to get changed and my husband was asleep already. He was laying down and he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, no, I don't know, something's wrong. And he put his hand on my belly. He says, no, I feel him. There he is. You know, he usually moved more for him anyway. And he heard his dad's voice and he's like, no, I still don't feel good, honey. I, I can't sleep like this. I'm just going to go to the ER and just make sure. So I get there and I went by myself thinking I'm just going to do a quick check go back home and I'm crying by then, you know, cause I just felt like something is so different. Um, and then they were like, well, let's get you on the monitor. You know, they took some time to do all these things and check me in. And then they did get the monitor on and I heard the heartbeat. I had my husband on speaker and we both were like, oh, thank God, you know, I was just overreacting. He's, he was sleeping, you know? Um, no, I, I didn't know at that moment that it was very low. They actually didn't tell me. So they had some come and do an ultrasound. And then that's another time where they didn't communicate anything. And I'm thinking like, this woman's really quiet. So I asked her, is it still a boy? You know, just kind of joking with her. And she's like, that's not what I look at when I'm doing these ones. And I was like, okay. And she continued doing her thing. And then next thing you know, a doctor comes uh, on call, Dr. Rise and asks about the heart rate again. And they told him the number and they just dragged me into surgery. So my son was only 30 weeks, 31 weeks and two days, basically almost 30 or five days. So almost 32 weeks. So my thought was just, oh no, like he's too young. He's going to be a preemie. What are you guys doing? Don't pull him out. He's not ready yet. And they're like, no, this is his best chance of survival. You know, we have to. So I'm freaking out. My husband wasn't there. I called on speaker again and I said, they're pulling me into surgery. He's like, don't worry, honey. I'll be there as soon as I can. I, he got a friend to watch our daughter and just like ran over there, but they were putting me under as well. I didn't know that was going to happen. And they started putting the mask and I was like, what in the world are you doing to me? I just panicked. I thought I'm going to die here. They're just going to cut me open and take my baby out. Like there was just no communication of what in the world was happening. Um, so I was so afraid and I just started praying and, you know, ask God to please protect me. I still have a husband and a daughter. And I asked, you know, to protect my son. And I was actually going to say his name, which we had thought was Jackson at the time, but I heard a name actually spoken to me. It was Owen Nathaniel. And that was one of our original names. So uh, when I woke up again, it was black, you know, I'm coming out of anesthesia and my husband was there very quiet. And I was like, something went wrong here. I just had no clue. Um, and the doctor stepped in and told me your son has died. And, you know, I screamed like a wounded animal, like you, I've never heard the voice that came out of me, you know, I couldn't believe it. And my husband, you know, he had to go through it all over again because he got there when they were resuscitating. So that's a part that I know will be spoken about today, the grief of a father. And he had to walk in to see them call the time of death of his son. And then me laying there cut open, like both of us slept here dead. So my husband has severe PTSD from this whole experience and, you know, he'll never recover because that was something none of us expected. So um, from that day on, you know, it's just a moment of dealing with the grief and feeling of lack of control. You know, you always think everything's going to be fine and we do the right things and we ate the right things. And, you know, I'm a good mother and a good wife. And it just was like, my whole world was demolished and I was, you know, severe depression for over a year. I couldn't leave my room very much. I did. I know I did because I have pictures of it, but I was dead inside. 
Um, but I had a daughter still to raise. So I did as much as I could with her. And, you know, she helped me out of it quite a bit as well. And from there, I haven't um, spoken about this a lot. So sorry, it's hard, but um, yeah, it's hard to find a reason. And why did this happen to us? And I, I remember I cried a lot and I prayed to God a lot. And I said, if you let this happen to me, let it be for a reason, you know, you use me for something. There has to be a reason you took my boy. And so that's why I agree with Lakisha, like our voice is important and we have to speak up for other mothers and other families, because as was mentioned also by Stacy, a lot of these are preventable. And at the time I didn't know the cause of my son's death. So I live with guilt for very many years. It's been six years and now finally I know the real reason from additional research that's available. But at the time I was just told sometimes healthy babies just die. Like, well, how could that happen? And so then it lands on the mother's shoulders to just feel like you screwed something up. It was your fault and it's not your fault. And so I feel like when I speak about Owen and what I've been through and, you know, the preventions that we know of now, hopefully, first of all, we'll help prevent this from happening because like Count the Kicks and all these great organizations have ways for you to be more aware and speak up to your provider and make sure your babies are cared for. But if it does happen to you, you know, I don't want anyone to live with the guilt that I did for so long and to be silenced by it because it's not fair for us. It wasn't our fault. And that's why I'm now with Push for Empowered Pregnancy and just raising awareness and trying my best to make sure that we improve medical care as well. There's a lot of things that we can do better for families. And, you know, there shouldn't be a reason why if almost full-term or full-term baby shouldn't be here alive if, you know, it was so close to the ends and we have rooms ready for them. I had breast milk that still came in, you know, I gave birth. It, it just, it's the most horrific thing that people don't even want to imagine. And it happens. And it, you know, like she mentioned the figures, it's 65 babies a day in our country. My son was one of those. And I can picture that 65 families tonight going home without their child and it's not okay. So I use my voice for my son, but also for everybody else who, you know, is after us. And I thank you for this panel. I don't know if I'm at my time. <laughs> I could say a lot more, but we'll wait for the end. Thank you, Anna. Now, normally I don't speak much after a speaker has spoken, but God's putting it on my heart to ask you because I, I do see a teddy bear in your hand there. Can you tell us, is that teddy bear part of your healing? He's new actually. And yes, his um, role is that he actually weighs the same as Owen did when he was born and he's the same length. Um, this was actually gifted to me by a really awesome new company original mama bear and uh, I've given one away as well but I think a lot of families like them I use it for photographs and things like that but I actually like them for these kind of things too so thank you for mentioning I just want people to know I mean these are real full-term babies like I know uh, we had discussion about what stillbirth even was and you know some people would be surprised to know these babies are not like you know early stage and a lot of them can survive. There's a lot of reasons why it's happening like with placentas and cords and things that we can take a better look at in the final stages. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Anna. I support you. Thank you for sharing your story. Our next speaker, we have a wife and husband duo, husband and wife, Kimberly and her husband, Randy Rootley. Randy is a Canadian dad of two girls, one in heaven. He lost his second born daughter to stillbirth in June 2020 and since then 
has realized a gap in support for grieving dads. He is eager to spread the message of what it's like as a grieving dad and how we can support them when they need it most. Kim is a mom of two girls, one in heaven. Her oldest is four years old and River Joy would have been 18 months old as she was born still at 34 weeks pregnant in June of 2020. Kim is married to her husband, Randy, for almost seven years. We're together with their daughter. They live in Toronto, Canada. Kim is passionate about stillbirth advocacy and supporting others through their grief with her social media platform, Instagram. Her goal is to help other mamas know they aren't alone in their grief and also help to prevent stillbirth from happening by educating others. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the wife and husband duo, Kimberly and Ryan Rutley. Thank you so much, Lakeisha and Gigi, just for this opportunity to share about our babies. Um, I just want to take you through my journey of stillbirth and the experience for us, almost as if you were there. Um, so yeah, I was going into my 34-week uh, appointment at my midwife office, Um you know, I had a healthy, normal pregnancy leading up to this. I was feeling good. Um, I go in the midwife. She's looking for the, she, I have my whole appointment. And then she gets out the Doppler to look for the heartbeat. And she's taking a really long time to find the heartbeat. And I'm getting annoyed at this point. I'm like, hurry up, lady. Like, you're making me nervous here. Um, she still couldn't find it. And then she brings in another midwife to help her. Um you know, my heart is racing at this point. Um, a couple of times they thought that they did find the heartbeat of our baby and they were mistaking it with mine. And there was a lot of confusion. Uh, they were not confirming it, um, just leaving me with, is my baby dead or alive? They couldn't tell me. And what they told me to do um, on that Tuesday morning was to drive almost an hour away to the hospital because this was at the midwife clinic. Um, and she said, go now to the hospital. I had never been to this hospital before. I'm freaking out, not knowing what was really happening. But of course, you're thinking the worst. Um, and I immediately called my husband in the parking lot, breaking down. And um, I, I came home right away to him. Um, and he luckily, we drove our almost three-year-old at the time to his mom's house, who happened to be home. And we drove there together. And I remember they kept asking me, you know, when's the last time you felt her move? And I, I didn't know, like, I couldn't remember. It was like my, I was in shock and my brain was just going crazy. And on the way there to that almost an hour long drive, I didn't feel her move once. And I turned to my husband and I said, this could be the worst day of our lives. And we drove there in silence. Um, and of course be it being the pandemic, um, you know, June of 2020, it was locked down. He had to wait in the car um, while I went up um, to confirm what was happening. And so I get up there and the, uh, the nurse or the midwife, um, she knew why I was there. She puts the Doppler on and all that. And the first things out of her mouth is um, that right there's baby. And I let out this huge sigh of relief. Like, thank God, this was all a mistake. And not even two seconds after that, she said, oh, hang on a second, that might be your heartbeat. And again, like back to the panic and not knowing, just so confused what was going on. And they call in the OB, he brings in the bedside ultrasound um, in complete silence. He's searching for the heartbeat. And the midwife who was there, she said, um, is your husband in the car? And I said, yes. And she said, why don't you call him to come up now? And that's when I knew. <laughs> and um, 
so the OB just looked and he's, he looked at me and he said, I'm so sorry, but I can't find a heartbeat. Um, and I just remember like not knowing how to feel because I was so in shock. Like I was 34 weeks pregnant. Everything was normal. Everything was fine. Um, you know, and, um, my husband walked in about two minutes later, um, to me screaming that she was gone. Um, and they gave us some time and then, you know, half an hour later, the OB comes back in and we have to make a decision. Now, are we going to be having a C-section or induction with natural birth? And, um, I wanted a C-section because I had one with my first and it was familiar to me um, and it seemed quicker, <laughs> um, but the OB really encouraged induction just because it's safer for me. Um, and so we went with induction and so they induced me. I went home, I packed um, her hospital bag, um, my robe, her little hat, um, her little blanket. And when we get back to the hospital, of course, I've, I've got my pillow. I've got my big 34 week pregnant belly and the receptionists are, oh, it's baby time. Congratulations. And, you know, they didn't know that I was there to give birth to my dead baby. And of course, I didn't have the strength to tell them. Um, but I go on up and, you know, into the labor and delivery room. And um, the first thing I hear is a newborn cry when I walked onto that floor. And I was so afraid for that silence that I was going to feel like I knew that I was not going to be hearing those newborn cries for my baby this time. Um, and that it was going to be silent in that delivery room. And that silence absolutely petrified me. I was so scared for it. Um, and of course, you know, I'm in labor the whole day, the whole night, finally, the next morning, um, I'm ready to push. And I just remember I was so excited to meet her um, all throughout this, you know, 24 hour labor with my dead baby, you know, knowing the outcome and that there was nothing I could do to change it, but also feeling a little bit hopeful at the same time for some weird reason, but also so excited to meet her. She was my baby and I finally was going to get to meet her. Um, and so when I was pushing, um, you know, and and I felt her leave my body. It was a moment that I don't know if I'll ever be able to fully accurately describe. Um, I felt, I heard her limbs hit the table beneath me, the silence in that room. Um, I felt like my body was an empty tomb, like the closest to death that I have ever experienced because we're giving birth to death. <laughs> um, you know, and I was so afraid to hold her. Um, and like um, Anna was saying too, like the, the sounds that left my body in those moments of her leaving me was like, yeah, not even human, just cries from deep within. I've never heard sounds like that ever come out of my mouth. And, um, you know, they wrapped her up, they stitched me up, they wrapped her up, put her little hat on. And, and I was so afraid to see her and look at her because I had never seen a dead baby before. I'd never held a dead baby before. And I was absolutely terrified for what she was going to look like. Um, 20 minutes later, they placed her in my arms. And I remember just feeling so overcome with love for her. Um, I loved her the same as my living daughter. Like there was no difference at all. And that was something I never really thought of until I held her for the first time was how much I loved this little girl. Um, and yeah, 
after that, um, you know, we got to hold her for as long as we wanted. And I think we were there for at least six hours. Um, and after they're born, um, deceased, they start to deteriorate very quickly. And she started to change. And I remember sitting there and holding her and just having this moment of like, she's not here. Like, yes, I ha I got to hold her and love her and have that moment of love for her. Um, but she's in heaven and she's been in heaven for maybe a couple days already. She's with the Lord. And I just remember like looking at my husband and I said, we have to go now. We need to go. It's time to go. And so we said our final goodbyes and we just had to hand our baby to that nurse who rocked her and cradled her and was so amazing with her. Um, and then we, we had to go home. Um, and that drive home was the longest hour drive ever. Um, but I remember all I wanted to do was go and see our almost three-year-old. She was a month away from being three. Um, I just wanted to hold her and love her. And, you know, grief, I always feel is like, it feels like love with nowhere to go. Um, and so all I wanted to do was to hold my three-year-old. Um, and so that's what we did. And then the next day we told her that, um, you know, we had to tell her, right. She was expecting a baby sister and she was so excited. And I remember just getting on the floor with her the next day, um, tears just rolling down my cheeks and trying to explain to a two, almost three-year-old that her baby sister is not going to be coming home to live with us anymore. And that her baby sister is in heaven now. And of course she doesn't really understand all of it, but she knew, she knew that mommy and daddy were sad. And I'll never forget. She put her two hands on my cheeks and she just wiped away my tears with her little thumbs. And she just looked into my eyes and it was the most beautiful moment. Like it was so sad, but it was so beautiful. And I'll never forget how gentle she was in that moment. And just realizing how much infant loss, um, stillbirth, it doesn't just affect the mom. It, it affects the whole family. You know, the mom, I carried her, of course, for those 34 weeks and had the most connection with her, but stillbirth is, is a whole family loss. Um, you know, and then walking through that parenting with her and she's four now, um, and talking about her all the time and processing that with her, um, and all of that. Let me just see if I had anything else I wanted to say. Um, yeah. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to say was that, um, I remember I, I think Anna was talking about the guilt and feeling like it was your fault, um, for the loss, because of course, many of us are not given answers right away. Um, and I remember a couple days after our loss, I was laying in bed and I started thinking of all the reasons that it could be. And I went into a complete and utter panic attack. I was screaming on my bedroom floor, like at the top of my lungs. And all I can describe it as, um, is it felt like the pit of hell. <laughs> it felt like the absence of hope in that moment. And I remember just like praying like, Jesus, where are you? Where are you? And he slowly started to show up and I started to feel that peace around me again. Um, and I remember after I kind of, you know, felt the peace after that, just feeling like I never want to feel like that again. Like 
I need to, um, I just started to immerse myself in, you know, healing and talking about it and processing it and counseling and group counseling, anything that I could do. Um, you know, I was connecting with other lost moms. Um, I started my Instagram platform to start you know, helping other lost moms feel less alone in their grief, because that's how I felt. You truly feel like you're the only one in the world who's gone through this. Um, and so I created my Instagram platform for that reason, um, to connect with other moms like that. And, you know, just to let them know that it wasn't their fault, um, and that they're not alone in their pain. Um, and so I know my husband wanted to share a little bit because I've, as I've seen as well, and I'm sure all of you ladies have that dads often get overlooked in grief. Um, and then, you know, the moms get all the presents and all the, you know, engraved necklaces and all of that. Um, so yeah, I wanted to give him an opportunity to share as well. Yeah. So this is my first time ever, um, talking about this publicly, um, even to my family members, like this is the first time I've ever kind of shared my perspective. So I'm honored that I get to have a platform to say that and um, share my heart. And like Kim said, yeah, it was really, really tough. And everything that she was describing, yeah, I felt, I felt so strongly. And I think the biggest part with, yeah, I didn't get to carry her, but the biggest part that affected me the most was that um I was grieving the memories that um I didn't I can't I won't have with her I won't get to walk her down the aisle which was like the first thing that I thought of when I when our firstborn was born and I held her I had the image of walking her down the aisle and it made me cry so I think I grieving that not having those moments and the whole time Kim was pregnant I was picturing oh okay another girl I can have multiple tea parties and painting my both our daughter my daughter's nails and doing all those things with her and then yeah once we got the, that that news it hit me like a ton of bricks that I won't get that um and like Kim kind of touched on yeah the, the husbands and dads get really overlooked um with this topic and I didn't really notice it um I just I figured it was just um loss so like when loss happens around and people around you kind of i mean it's sad to say but lose interest like they care for the most part and there's a select few who really care and invest time but for the most part people just go about their lives um normally and so i just i've been through a lot of loss with my dad dying when i was 20 um yeah kim's dad dying a couple years ago and um yeah, just a lot of loss. And um, so I just kind of thought that, that was what it was. And then what really hit me was at the funeral when Kim was, a lot of people were talking to Kim and a lot of people were just coming up to me and saying, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss and then moving on. And then it was everyone talking to Kim and, you know, being compassionate and just hearing her heart and giving her a space to talk. And I didn't get that. And, um, that happened very frequently. And so I kind of took that as, okay, I need to be the man and I need to be there for Kim and support Kim. And I, I, I just need to grieve and find time to grieve for myself by myself. So I'd wake up in early in the mornings or late at night, I'd cry myself to sleep or wake up super early to, to pray and to just cry out to God and kind of get it out. 
I did a year of that. And then on Christmas Eve last year, um, I was putting Moravia down, my daughter, um, firstborn, and I had a crazy panic attack. And um, it lasted 12 hours off and on. Um, I calmed down, went to sleep, woke up with it again. And then it took me, yeah, six hours of that day praying and calming myself down and then finally getting to a place of like, okay, wow, that really, where did that come from? And recognizing like, okay, I didn't actually grieve. I didn't get a chance to grieve. Um, I didn't get that space. So, um, and with that, I, I, I've developed like IBS because of all that anxiety. I've had this, yeah, this past year, I've finally gotten to a place where I'm healthy. I've had health issues up and down and, um, yeah. And just fear over my health and with my daughter as well. Like I, I was a lot more like, Oh, she has a runny nose. Oh, is something going to happen? And just really paranoid. Um, and no one understood that because as a man, you can't show that you have to be strong. You have to be supportive. You have to be, can't show weakness, I guess. And that's just the culture we live in. But, and I don't identify as that I'm very vulnerable and I can be, I don't mind that at all, but I found myself identifying with that and walking in that. And then, yeah, it took me a year to be like, I'm done with that and starting my, my walk with healing and with the Lord and recognizing like, okay, it's okay that I, like, I have fear and it's okay that I'm going through this. And like, I'm a person just as my wife is a person and yeah, it's different, but it's still, yeah, it's still lost and it's still my daughter. So I'm just honored that I can just, yeah, share this. And, um, for all the dads that may be listening or watching or, um, whatever, like, yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> um, I know it may feel like it, but, um, yeah, your strength is in your vulnerability and being real. And if you need to share that and, yeah. um, any way you feel, yeah, yeah, do that. Dad's grief too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Randy and Kim. Thank you guys. Um, <clears throat> father and Mother, do I love it? Thank you for sharing how you felt because, like you said, we, they really don't know how the dads grieve when they lose their child. So, thank you so much for being vulnerable, right, Dan? Thank you so much, sister. I definitely support you. Our next speaker is Karina Portes. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Your last name? Okay. Portes. Portes. Okay. Mommy to son Trevor Raphael, whom was stillborn. As a grieving mom finding out the cause of death, of her son was devastating. After sending his placenta pathology to and Dr. Harvey Kilman from Yale University, who determined it was from a placenta abruption due to a 16% tile small placenta. In other words, this could have possibly been prevented if my baby placenta was measured during the pregnancy, which unfortunately is not standard care in the United States today. There are 23,000 babies a year that are stillborn just in the United States, and a lot of them are preventable, making measuring the placenta standard care would have saved my baby and many more. Today, her family have to live with this, out, this ongoing grief and trauma. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Karina Portes. Hello, and thank you. Thank you, everybody here. Thank you for making me stronger and being able to speak to this. 
on this on this platform and and um, Anna's platform. Um, it was February 2021 when we found out we were pregnant with a third baby, which is Trevor, a mom to three. Uh, Trevor Rafael um, was not planned, but wonderfully welcome to the world. We were expecting him. Everybody um, was expecting him, was excited for him. It's been eight years. My youngest is eight. So it was a wonderful surprise. Uh, my pregnancy was completely perfect. I had a textbook perfect pregnancy, as they may say, right? I never, I never missed an appointment. I went to every scan. I. My, my previous um, pregnancies were were good, so I, I didn't think, you know, I, this was even a possibility. I I didn't know about this, and am I am I here? Yes, ma'am. We can oh. hear you and see you. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, uh, everything was perfect. And this was just last year um, when we find out. And again, I wanna thank, you know, the platforms, um, Anna uh, and everybody, um, Measure the Placenta, and that makes me much stronger. And just listening to Stacy now, just wanna um, say that this does make you stronger, just talking and advocating for other babies that you know, can um, actually survive. So um, going back to my baby, after 32 weeks, um, uh, the doctor decided, I didn't think I was high risk at all. I was always been low risk pregnancy, everything was well. After 32, they started um, doing a scan a week. At 37 weeks, I went to my last scan where that's when the um, when I heart, uh, heard uh, Trevor's heartbeat for the last time at 37 weeks, and everything was fine. And the doctor said, "Well, everything was good." I'm like, "Yeah, he's moving. He's moving so much. He's so active in there." Uh, which later I found out that it's it's also a possible, um, you know, way to find out if the baby's in distress, right? So yeah, babies. Good, he's moving, he's the scan, everything come out good. There at that, at that appointment, the doctor um, looks at me and says, well, you know you are at risk of stillbirth. I really, um, and I turn around as I was leaving the, 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 the doctor's office and, and I look back and I said, what is that? And uh, or I said, excuse me? And he said, yeah, but you shouldn't worry about it. So the doctor said I shouldn't worry about it. So why should I, right? So the doctor's right. He knows better than I do, right? So baby was perfect. That week, um, every Thursday, that was a Monday. Every Thursday, I would turn a new week. So uh, on um, August 23rd, I, I August 26th, I turned 30, 38 weeks. That was a Thursday. On Friday, I was laying down. And I felt this sharp pain in my lower abdominal where 
I, I didn't think anything, but maybe, you know, I'm going into labor. I'm excited. You know, I'm going into labor, maybe. So I tell Diego, you know, what? we're going into labor. I, I think I think it's almost time. But it was this big pain that just, it, it lasted probably like 30 seconds or 40 seconds, really sharp pain. And then it went away and I felt nothing else. That was third, uh, a Friday. That Saturday, the 28th. I I didn't feel the baby moving that much, and and I didn't think nothing of it. I actually we were having dinner. I I had an ice cream, and I said, you know, maybe the baby's gonna start moving after the ice cream. Even my daughter, which was expecting her baby brother so much, like she was the one that organizes his nursery. She was counting every week, every time I turn a week a new week. Um. So yeah, I ate the ice cream, and no movement. So unfortunately I waited and on Sunday I, I left to the hospital and as they were bringing me in, asking me all the questions and all the medical questions before they put the Dobblers and, and all the preparations to hear the baby's heartbeat, I, um, I'm laying there and one of the nurses come in and she tries to listen. Already I'm a little bit scared. It's just the mother intuition, like all of us said. I felt something was wrong. But never this, you know, you never think it's, you know, that your baby's going to die. So um, the nurse leaves. Another one comes in. She tries to find it again. And nothing, you know, nothing. And I just see that the commotion, like all the nurses kind of talking to themselves. And I'm just scared here. Um, my husband's like sitting next to me. He's like, "Don't worry, Trevor's strong. He's he's gonna he's okay." No. I'm sorry. So um, they didn't hear me. Sorry, but. But unfortunately, after the scan, they didn't. They didn't hear his heartbeat. And at that point, the doctor, um, actually, the doctor didn't even walk in. He called, the phone rang, and I answered. And he's like, I'm sorry, we don't have a heartbeat. And I'm like, excuse me, what does that mean? So um, that's what it means, right? Baby's not here anymore. And then. We were given the option to have a C-section. Um, yeah, I decided, uh, we both decided I was better since I had my previous pregnancies, normal, vaginal, I got induced and I delivered my baby. At first, I didn't want to carry my baby. I didn't even want to see him. To be honest, I didn't want to see my baby and I just wanted to be Locked out. I just just put medication. I don't want to be here. I don't want to. I don't want to feel that I'm here. And so my husband was so amazing. He carried the baby. He he showered the baby. He bathed the baby. He dressed him. And after he did that, he said, "You know, I, I think you should carry him." And he brought him to me, and, and I and I got to carry my seven pounds, four ounces baby. On August 30th, I delivered him. And 
you know, when everybody comes into the room and like we heard previously, they're asking about funeral arrangements and they're asking you um, about naming the baby or not. Or, you know, I just didn't even know, you know, naively ignorant. I didn't know this was a possibility at all. And um, it really came into a surprise. Um, it was, you know, um, very sad. And, and I really am blessed to have this platform and to have people like Anna that made me really stronger and be able to talk about it. My family has been there 100% for me during these times. Um, and I just want to be here because if I can save a baby, if I can save a baby, that's, that, that, you know, that, that, that means the world to me. And that means the world to me. And maybe, you know, there's a purpose for everything in life. Like we always, my mom always tells me and my family members and my loved ones, they, they always say, you know, there's a reason for, for things happening and we don't know, we don't know the future. So the future is now and listening to other speakers that have been in this situation longer it's so similar to what I'm going through right now and and I practically just started my baby just you know he just turned four months in December you would have and I want to be here and I want to be the voice to to anybody that I can you know possibly tell them you know listen to your intuition um talk to the doctor ask him questions don't be quiet um download the count of kicks i didn't even know that i didn't know about the count of kicks which the guilt consumes me every day because maybe i should have known this you know and measuring the placenta is so important uh, and 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 this is what makes me stronger every day being able to possibly um save a baby's life and and if that's what it takes and this is my the way I'm gonna grieve and the way I'm I'm gonna spread the word and, and as much as I can I haven't started anything on my own because I'm I'm, I'm here with everybody that has already started something like and uh, push pregnancy everybody like everybody that I know and I and if I can reach anybody that is pregnant, that I can prevent this horrific, horrific incident for the entire family, like Kimberly says, is everybody, my daughter, my son. No, everybody was expecting baby Trevor to be here with us today. And this is just unheard, you know, something that I cannot even Still today, I, I sit here and I, I'm a little bit in denial. <laughs> as crazy as it might sound, but yeah. And again, I really thank social media, right? For the good that has provided me in this horrific situation and in my grieving process. And I also want to share that, um, Anna, thank you. Um, thank you again. And I also did. I always saw Anna with a teddy bear and I was wondering what it was and I just started going to the search and, and, and I didn't 
and I did, and I we ordered the same teddy bear, which is I didn't know they would do the same weight, the same length, and it's amazing. When we received it, I just we just got it two days ago, and it's like I don't know if you can see it there, and it's like big, big baby, you know. I don't know how much you can see there, but it really helps. You know, my daughter fights to sleep with him. He she wants to sleep with him, and it's it's. Cons- it feels, you know, it empty. Our empty arms are aching for for Trevor and having the bear is kind of and doing this and talking about it and, and spreading the word and and you know trying to educate people and you know listen to your intuition, go to the hospital, scream to the OBGYN if you feel anything, anything that that, that you feel different. Just say it because at one point I did feel a little bit different but I, I didn't trust my intuition I didn't and measuring the placenta is a such a big deal that you know it's not standard care in the U.S. right now and, and we believe that it could have possibly saved my baby's life and that's even more guilt to live with right so I really really thank you everybody thank you Gigi for having this platform and and everybody here for sharing your story and making me stronger because it is an ongoing thing every day. It's just uh, as my family members always tell me, one day at a time. And that's exactly what I'm living, one day at a time. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Karina. Thank you, Karina. You're wonderful. You're awesome, Thank girl. You. We support you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're so new. We definitely thank you for being vulnerable to share your story. This is still new. Our next speaker, <clears throat> Camilla Castor, is a mommy of two, wife, salon owner, and after her life-changing experience of being a surrogate and having a stillbirth, she co-founded a nonprofit organization, London is the Reason, and is a change maker for push for empowered pregnancy. Originally from Ecuador, South America, Camilla moved to Texas when she was nine years old, From a young age, she was always creative, strong-willed, and independent. Camilla has always loved educating others and encouraging them for better. After high school, she became a cosmetologist who worked hard to open her own business and has owned her own salon for 13 years. Also managed to earn her cosmetology instructor's license so she can pursue her dream of education and is a substitute at the cosmetology institution. After establishing a family and having two children of her own, Camilla wanted to continue to help others. She became a surrogate mother and was ecstatic about being able to give someone the miracle of being parents who otherwise wouldn't be able to do so. At the end of her surrogacy journey, the baby Camilla had been carrying was stillborn at 39 weeks. This was a life-altering experience who was tough and traumatic for everyone involved. Camilla preserved and felt her true mission was to help others in another way that what she was planned. She is, she now, co-founder nonprofit organization London is the reason to support surrogates and their intended parents through infant loss. Camilla is also one of the newest change makers for push for empowered pregnancy and is fighting every single day to end preventable stillbirth. As a maternal health advocate who was pushing her advocacy to end preventable stillbirth, Camilla holds support groups in English and Spanish to educate and offer support to any parent who has experienced a stillbirth. Camilla believes when you use your grief and turn it to love, it is a very powerful tool and unites it we can use to create the change we deserve. Ladies and gentlemen, please, please welcome our last speaker, Camilla Castor.
Hi, Lakeisha, thank you. And thank you, Gigi, so much for having me here. Um, it's an honor to be able to join um, all these other ladies and be able to tell my story and um, advocate for stillbirth as well. Um, so my story is a little bit unique um, than everybody else's. I have two children here on earth um, of my own. And, and right before this crazy pandemic started, uh, me and my husband decided um, that we were gonna go through a surrogacy journey. For those of those, of those who don't know, um, surrogacy um, a lot of times has to do with, with infertility. So I was just a carrier that this wasn't my baby. It was the baby of a wonderful couple that I got to meet through this whole journey and I'm still very close with. So right before the pandemic, I decided to be um, a surrogate. You go through the IVF process also with the um, in vitro fertilization. Everything went, went perfect. I uh, took hormones and did medical testing, um, saw high-risk doctors for about eight months and everything was great. We, we, they call it the transfer. So when they put the embryo um, in, in my uterus, it, it's called a transfer and everything went great. I had a positive pregnancy test within four days. Um, I, I got cleared from the hormones. My body accepted the pregnancy as my own. Uh, it was also a textbook pregnancy. Like a lot of these ladies have said, um, I was going to a lot of extra doctor's appointments as well since my situation of being a surrogate. And um, I, I was very naive. You know, I had two perfect pregnancies with, with my children. And I, I just, I never thought that um, this would be a world that, that I entered in. Um, accepting the surrogacy, you know, explaining that to my family, uh, clients, my kids uh, was already a lot. It was something that we were learning how to navigate in a new world that we kind of joined in. Um, but the stillbirth world is something I definitely never thought. Um, nobody ever, you know, educated me on how important it is to count the kicks, to know your baby 100%, um, to be, be an advocate for yourself and, and then scream to your medical providers when something isn't wrong, is, is wrong or you feel something is wrong. Um, it's very, with that being said, it's also very important to not blame yourself. I think as a mom, um, as a woman carrying a child, I think it's very important um, to not blame yourself because you learn things after your loss and, and you learn that maybe your pregnancy like mine, your loss could have been prevented. Um, it's very important not to blame yourself. I think that was really hard. Um, so around 38 weeks, I, I did start feeling off. Um, I, I had a perfect pregnancy up to that day. And all of a sudden um, I started getting very nauseous. Um, I started throwing up. Um, I didn't gain any weight. Um, things that to me felt off. I, I didn't experience any of this um, in my first pregnancy, but um, one, I told my healthcare providers, they, they reassured me that it was normal and that everything was okay. Um, I had my last doctor's appointment five days before my scheduled C-section date at 39 weeks. Um, I had a scheduled C-section because I had two prior C-sections with my own baby. So we decided that was the best option for, for um, baby London and myself. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was very exciting. Um, both of our families got together. Um, stillbirth is something that affects um, a whole family. Um, like I've heard a lot of you say, not, not, just, not just the mom, um, not just the dad, not just the carrier. Um, it affected my husband, my kids, my parents, um, my brother, uh, their London's parents as well. Their whole entire family um, has been tragically affected by this. And um, so I went in on the, the day I turned 39 weeks, I went in um, super happy to the hospital. 
Um, I had a very weird feeling inside me just because I couldn't wait to hear the heartbeat. I just wanted to be sure um, it, it was there because I have been feeling so off. And when I um, got to that hospital, they hooked me up to the monitors. They um, no longer at first, they also thought they heard a heartbeat, which I've now learned. I think it was so recent to my, my scheduled date um, that my placenta was still beating. So it was not the baby's heartbeat. And um, the, the nurses didn't know what to do. You know, they hooked it up. They were saying maybe it was the Doppler that didn't work. They tried um, one of the, like the, uh, the, home Doppler looking ones that they have and they still couldn't find it and they said maybe that Doppler was broken and they called another doctor and he sonogrammed me and all of a sudden everyone got very quiet um, he just said I'm, I'm sorry there's no heartbeat and he left um, and at this point you know a lot of the decisions weren't left to us since um, we, we weren't the parents of baby London and so it was very hard they left us in a room um, for what seemed like an hour more um, by myself with my husband. Um, nobody came in and nobody came to explain to me why. I kept asking, um, can they resuscitate her when she comes out? Are they not even going to try? Um, why did this happen? What did I do? I think it was the only time um, during my surrogacy that I, I felt that I couldn't um, protect, no longer protect this baby and that I felt that I was failing at the job I signed up for to do, um, to give these wonderful people the opportunity um, to be able to come be, become parents themselves. Um, which like I said, as a mom, I think we all know that, that a parent's love is, is just the strongest thing that there is in this world. There's no other love like it. Um, and therefore um, it, it's just very mind opening, you know, my doctor, I asked um, at the time, or one of the things she was able to answer, I asked her, does this happen all the time? And she said, no, it's just so rare. And that was the few things she said. Um, I still, I had to go through the C-section. So I sat in a cold operating room um, for an hour while they were able to, to get the baby out. And it was silent. All I could hear was the doctor and the nurses and everybody crying. Um, nobody was saying anything to me. Nobody was talking to me. And um, it, it was just very scary. Um, I was there, you know, cut open. I, I kept thinking in my head that something was going to happen to me and that my husband and, and these poor parents and my parents were going to have to deal with that loss as well. And um, I, I managed to re remain calm. Um, they, they really, it was very lonely. Um, I think, you know, nobody, I, I learned recently that a stillbirth happens every 16 seconds in the world. Um, almost more often than any other tragedy you, you, can, you can imagine. And it's very little spoken about it. Um, at first, um, especially because of our unique situation, I just felt very lost. I wasn't sure on what to do. Um, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to talk about it. I had so many people, clients, friends, um, waiting to hear the story and waiting to hear and see pictures just because it was so unique. And um, it was just such a cool experience. A lot of people were following my journey. Um, this was, you know, the only, I only planned to do this once. And so um, I was documenting everything and all my clients were following me. And it, it was, it was just so cool, to, you know, that I had so many people involved. And when this happened, um, the anxiety is, is definitely real. Um, nobody talked to me about anything. So after 20 hours, my doctor came in the first time she came to see me and she said, okay, well, you want to go home? And that, that was it. Nobody else said anything to me. Um, 
I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I felt like I had no support. I called my surrogacy agency. They said they've never heard of anything like this happening. Um, it, it was a very lonely road to, to walk in. And um, I, I think that uh, a lot of things can be done. It's very painful for a lot of parents, a lot of moms to be able to talk about this and, and talk about their experience because it was so horrible and so traumatic. And I think that's what led me um, here to, to push and um, to be here with you guys on this panel today. Um, as a surrogate, um, as a mom of my own, I, I chose to, to be strong and to move on. And like I said, to use my love as a mother um, instead of my pain and grief to be able to speak for, for babies like, like London and for parents who can't yet use their voice and who are so hurt they aren't able to tell their story. Um, I think it's so important, you know, about 55% of women aren't told how important it is to keep tracks of, of your baby's movements. Um, you're told that if the, the baby's moving, everything is okay, and that's it. And um, there, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, no one ever told me when I left the hospital what to do with, with all this milk that I had coming in. Um, I started pumping, and then I didn't want to pump, and then I would have to pump again, and I had no idea what to do. I didn't know who, who to go to, who to call. Um, we, you know, th thank God for my family as well. Um, that was very supportive. And, and London's parents have been such a rock to me um, while they're grieving, grieving themselves. Um, you know, as pregnant women, you know, now I, I find the strength um, with the grief. The grief is what honestly gives me the strength to be able to, to educate and to help women who are pregnant. Um, I know it's been mentioned, I think, by all of us. Count the kicks is just so, so important. I, I highly believe that if my intuition, if I would have been used my voice, if I wouldn't have left that hospital or that doctor's office that day, um, content with what with what they told me if I would have told them no something I'm feeling off something is wrong I know that she would be here today and and that's why I'm here to tell my story and and to speak for these parents who who can't speak yet um I think like I said I think the main important thing in the healing journey is coming to understand that it wasn't your fault um it's really really hard to to understand that I think as moms we all know that we would never do anything to harm um, our babies or a baby that you're carrying within you. Um, I said in my case, whether it's your baby or not. And I think that's very important. Um, I felt uh, very guilty um, that I wasn't able to, to you know, give, give these parents their, their living baby and they weren't able to take their home. They had a five hour drive home with an empty car seat. And, um, you know, that you can't blame yourself for the things you didn't know. Um, before your loss happened. I, I think I think that's one of the most important things. And um, after you learn, you know, anybody who, who is pregnant, the number's never gonna be zero. Um, we're working so hard with push to, to try to make that number zero. And although it may never be, um, as, as mothers, it, I think it's extremely important to educate yourself on, just to see your baby, to take pictures of your baby. Um, nobody also told me that as well at the hospital, if it wasn't for London's mom bringing her to me. Um, I think I would still have that in the back of my head. What did, what did she look like? Did I really do this for, for these people? Did I really have a baby? Um, what, what was she like? And um, I, I thank them for, for bringing her to me because no medical professional there um, ever told me these facts, didn't tell me that this is good for the healing and the grieving process and um, that it's normal to feel guilty. And, um, you, you know, all the facts that I, that I now know 
Um, and, and, you know, as a mom, I think it's also, I think you have to come to point to be, it's okay to talk about it. Um, it's okay to grieve your baby forever for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. Um, this is your baby and, um, we don't need to be, you know, scared or anxious to talk about it. Um, we, we need to change the stigma and we all need to be together. Um, you know, a, a stillbirth every 16 seconds, it's, it's just such a huge statistic. And I think if all of our mother's love and all of our um, grief was, was put together, I think we would get closer to, to you know, ending this, this horrible pandemic really is, is what it is. It's a silent pandemic. And um, I said, the number may not be zero, but a lot of our babies could be here today. And um, I hope that this reaches, like, like a lot of y'all said too, if it reaches one person, um, I think that's a step in the right direction. And I think speaking my voice, although at first I thought was only going to be hard and bring me anxiety, I think that's what's helped me grieve and become what I am today. Honestly, London has changed my life, has changed the way I speak, the way um, I talk to people, the way I encourage women, the way I, I help women. Um, who say they're scared to be pregnant or, you know, going through a loss. I, I think um, it, it just helped me be able to, to do all that and seeing things in the little time that I've been a lost, um, I say a lost mom, surrogacy lost mom. Um, it, it's just been so many wonderful things that have been done, like the Shine Act for 2021, um, which we're waiting to pass. Um, and I hope something like this, if you if you listen to it, you're able to go and you're able to vote for something like that or, or see who your representatives are, who you are voting for, um, for the SHINE Act. It is to fund research for stillbirth. Um, the numbers of stillbirth are still climbing and um, it's just such a, a bad tragedy. It, it affects everything. It affects mental health, um, postpartum depression, um, families, marriages, children. And uh, we, we all have to get together as moms and as women to, to be able to stop this and talk about it. And um, for ourselves, I'll, I'll end with, you know, today my husband asked me, does this, do you feel like this makes you more sad or does this help you? And I said, no, it, I think this is the reason why I have been able to use my sadness into um, strength and, and support. It's so helpful to talk to other women that have stories like you and, um, to, to speak to them, to bond with them, um, to cry with them even, and to know that you're not alone. So um, I appreciate every, every one of these ladies that, that's here today. It's been um, so helpful in, in my healing journey. And um, I think, you know, we're, we're only going to better the numbers from here. I think we have such a strong force just with the women that I've met. And so I, I look forward to spreading the word and awareness and, and helping and seeing that number be reduced in, in the future. So I thank you again for having me. Today it was a pleasure. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you for sharing your story. So now I want to give a shout out to all of our sponsors that sponsor the event. Um, Ragnar Sanika, she is the founder of World Women's Conference and Awards. Women Entrepreneurs TV Changemakers Coach and Public Speaker, Michael D. Butler. He's the CEO of Beyond Publishing, Book Publisher, Global Speaker, and Media Coach. Danielle Gomez, keynote speaker, corporate trainer, executive coach, confidence architect, and author, Melanie Ake. She is the founder of Everyday Leaders, professional coaching and consulting, and yours truly, the master of ceremony, Lakeisha James. I am a corporate event planner, set designer, mentor, author, and the Atlanta chapter leader for the World Women Conference and Awards. So now we're going to move into our roundtable discussion. Are you guys ready for that? Yes. I'm excited about it. So my first question is, how do you guys cope? I know for me, 
like I said, this is the first, not well, really the first time I've actually went into detail about my experience. I've said a little snippet to it to Stacey because she had me on an interview last year, but I really never went into detail about it. And I think for me, my coping would be just learning to allow yourself to grieve, right? Allow yourself to grieve and talk about it. How do you guys cope with your with the loss of your babies? Let's let's put our hair down. Just how you guys cope. It's an open. How do you get through? How do you guys get Um, through? So, so one of the things that I feel um, I have done to to help me cope Mm -hmm. is definitely to be okay with grieving and to allow yourself to feel sad whenever you need to. Um, Is I think that everybody grieves differently. So there shouldn't be a timeline or, you know, a specific way in which you need to grieve. Um, Don't worry about any of that stuff. Um, You know, focus on yourself, focus on your family. Um, Somebody on the panel said um, one day at a time. And I think that is such an important thing to, to hone in on. It's each day, every day, one day at a time. Um, Of course, grief, kind of goes in um, waves, you know, sometimes it's really strong. And then sometimes there's days where you're feeling okay. Um, I think accepting your grief and understanding that this is now a part of your life has helped me cope um, and helped me with my grief and to push on and, and to create a legacy for my daughter. I love that. Anyone else want to take that question? I agree with Stacy. I think um, definitely part of almost like accepting that it's okay to not be okay sometimes. Um, accepting that, you know, it took me a lot to accept that, you know, the anxiety I had about going to work and telling people until I got to the point where I said, you know, it's okay if I shed a tear or if I'm telling my story and I cry. Um, but another thing I think all moms have trouble with already, um, whether you experience a lot, a loss or not, um, something that London really taught me is to not forget about myself. Um, I do, I tend to do a lot for other people and especially throughout my journey, um, I was, wor- I was very worried about everybody else, but myself. Um, and I think it, it you know, my, my loss, um, just really was a slap in the face to me that I need to worry about me. So if you're in that bad mindset and you're going to a bad place or you're in that dark hole after your loss, um, it's okay to, to, to leave your kids, you know, playing by themselves for a second, obviously if they're old enough and go take a shower for yourself. Um, or, or journaling, you know, I, I would wake up sometimes 30 minutes early um, so I could cry and journal. And it's okay to, to do that. It's okay to take a break, you know, from, from your husband. And um, I also started cross-stitching. I found that um, it was very important for me to have my head in the right place. And that was one of the things that I can do that I can't think about anything else because I suck and I have to concentrate really hard. Um, and so anything you can do for yourself, I think as a, as a lost um, w- woman now, I, um, I just think it, I just can't express how important enough for your healing to, to just remind yourself of yourself and for those six months for that year until you're able to get to that place of peace. I think it's so important, um, to just be kind to yourself and to remember that you matter and nothing else matters around you if you are not okay. Um, if you're not in a well mental place. And, um, I think that's really important to, to just take the time to take care of yourself. I love that. Thank you, Camilla. Lakeisha, um, just I have a question for uh, Camilla. After, go ahead, uh, Kim, if you were going to answer that question as well. 
No, I was just going to add on, um, you know, to realize that you don't have to do it alone. Um, it can be a really lonely experience, um, stillbirth, and just knowing that there's resources out there um, and that you really don't have to suffer alone and that you can reach out, you know, counseling, um, other loss, connecting with other lost moms, um, group counseling, whatever it is, like don't suffer alone. And that's been a huge thing um, for me and, and how I've been able to cope. I love that. Go ahead, Gigi. You say you have a question for Camilla? Yes. So Camilla is, is a surrogate, correct? So now with your situation, it's it's quite unique because with your situation, four people were impacted, your husband and then the wife and husband whom were going to be the parents of the child you were giving birth to, correct? You're right. Yes. It was, um, I mean, like I said, our whole family, you know, they, they've gone through their own fertility issues and things. So their whole family, grandparents, aunts, siblings, um, friends, uh, everyone was awaiting for them to, to have this um, because of the journey they've been through. And then on my side as well, um, my parents, uh, my family, my kids, my husband, my parents' husband, um, I mean, cousins that live in Ecuador, you know, have been messaging me, keeping up with my journey, um, just because it was so unique. So on my end as well, it was like everybody was waiting to see how it ended, to see how it went, to see how I felt when I gave them the baby, um, to see the baby. And so it affected a lot, um, a lot of us, you know, like I said, not just me being the carrier, not just them being the parents, it affected um, just a, a really big number of people with, with, with what happened to us. Okay, another question. I will give this to you, Stacy. I know you had referred to when we were, when I was reading your bio, you called your baby sleeping baby. Do you prefer sleeping baby? Still birth baby, what do you prefer? Personally, I think, well, first of all, it's a personal choice for everybody. Um, the child is is dead and, you know, obviously um, there are medical terms that, that talk about that. Um, I prefer stillborn baby, um, but I have used the word sleeping baby. Um, I, I try to use the terminology stillborn baby because um, I don't want people to be confused with sleeping baby. Mm -hmm. um, so my personal preference is stillborn baby. Yeah, I think the stillborn, stillborn is my personal preference as well. What about you, Anna? How do you, I know we discussed this yeah, yesterday. Actually, the funny thing about my story is since I delivered and he was alive going into delivery, um, I actually was told I can get a birth certificate for my son after delivery. And so no one mentioned stillbirth to me. I actually didn't go get the certificate right away because I was so worked up about how that would go and how I'd feel, you know, going to line up and not having a child to ask for. But I finally did it a couple months later. And so I'm standing there in line and everyone had their babies, you know, another horrific moment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have mine. I knew in my heart, I'm like, I almost felt like I was a faker, you know, what am I getting a birth certificate for? But I wanted one more thing with his name on it. And so I got up there and they couldn't find his name. And they said, is this a mistake? Maybe you have the wrong birthday. I said, absolutely not. Like, of course I know my son's birth date. And so they had me submit like a request. And then it got back to me and it said, unfortunately, this name is not in our system. So then I had to call the hospital and find out what's going on. You guys told me I can get it. They gave me one from them. You know, they usually print you one out with the birth time and everything. And they said, oh, we are so sorry. We should have called you. That was a mistake. Um, clerically, you know, because he didn't breathe, he's considered a stillborn baby. He does not get a birth certificate. The only thing you're going to get is a death certificate. 
Oh, wow. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, oh, I was so angry, you know, that I was even put through all this and not knowing that at that term, I just still didn't know that term until that moment. So I started looking it up and I'm like, how can they say that to me? You know, and they did try to resuscitate for 30 minutes. So actually the time of death on his death certificate is 30 minutes after the birth time that I have from the paperwork. So I was like, well, you can't say that he was born and then he was dead. And then you're not going to give me the birth certificate. And I was just, it was a whole ordeal. And it's, you know, really traumatizing to parents. There are now some states that give you a certificate of birth uh, resulting in stillbirth, mm -hmm. which you can request. And I did eventually get that, but I was just, you know, it's upsetting for me. I don't like the terms. I feel like he's still my son. He was born. I delivered him by C-section. Like I did all my other children. Uh, he was a boy, you know, call him any of those names. Why are you calling him stillborn? It's ridiculous. Like I don't, prefer that as the way he died. And it's not actually a cause of death. The actual cause of his death was cord compressions. Uh, you don't tell someone, oh, this is my grandpa heart attack. Like you don't attach those things. Like, mm -hmm. so I dis dislike it completely. I do use it on social media's hashtags and such. So people can find me because I'm the same as Kimberly. I'm there for support for others. And I want to be found, you know, in that sense, but I don't think it's a term that really applies to my son. So. understand understand how about you Karina how do you feel about that what do you what terminology do you use at first um when I came home without the baby I I said sleeping I said silent I said sleeping and it was because I have a 10 and an 8 year old it was a bit confusing for them so um you know gradually we've been you know changing because she she also told me mom she told me the, the harsh word that we don't want to hear, like, mommy, he's dead. And so we are staying by stillborn. Thank you for that. And Anna and Stacy, could you guys tell us a little bit more about the Stillbirth Act? And then, of course, um, with the push with your agency, Anna, please, so we can let the world know exactly what you guys do and how awesome you guys are. All of us are awesome, but mm -hmm. these ladies are doing some tremendous things. So we definitely want to know more about that and how we can get involved. I'll let Stacy explain the act since that was introduced by okay. them, but we are supporters of the act and I can definitely say, you know, our role in it and support. So um, the SHINE Act is actually um, an amazing piece of legislation written by um, Debbie Hayne, VJ Virgia, who also lost her daughter um, to stillbirth. Mm -hmm. And the legislation basically tells um, is, is allocating funds um, for better data collection measures because currently in the US, um, there's lots of challenges with recording the data um, and um, collecting the data. Um, the funds would also allocate options for research um, as well as um, bringing awareness to um, finding um, a solution to um, preventing um, preventable stillbirths. <laughs> um, so right now um, it was passed by the House and we are awaiting uh, Senate sponsorship. Um, and when the time comes, um, you can definitely visit um, the Shine Act Instagram page, uh, the Two Degrees Foundation, social media, as well as PUSH. 
um, and we will continue to give you updates on what's going on, uh, call to actions as well. Um, and um, hopefully we can all reach out to um, the people in our state and say that we're in support of this um, and that we wanna see this uh, go through um, because this is really just the beginning um, of, of finding solutions and, and trying to impact um, stillbirth outcomes here in the US. Thank you so much for that, Stacey. Yeah, Push for Empowered Pregnancy was a newer organization. So we just established ourselves last year. We're also bereaved parents. Um, there are some grandparents as well in the group and all of us are here to end preventable stillbirth. And with that, of course, we definitely are behind any kind of legislation, especially the Shine for Autumn Act, because um, even in our state, I started talking about it. It's like, oh, let's follow suit of what's going on in New Jersey. They're starting to do some things there. And then the national one came up, the Shine for Autumn Act. And we were so happy because we're like, oh, good. That's really what we need. We need a consistent system throughout the whole United States. It should not be done state by state differently. Um, fortunately, how can you do research? You know, if everybody's not even putting a cause of death the same way, some of them aren't requiring it. There's not enough training. Not everybody knows how to do a proper autopsy on a baby. And, you know, additional things that can be done now, like the placenta pathology, there aren't that many people who are specialists in that. So we think that that's definitely like a beginning point for sure. And, you know, as a parent who lost a child to stillbirth, it's a small sum I know that they're asking for. So we were definitely disappointed to see when the votes came in that there were a lot of Republicans that said no at the end. So I called and I just wanted to make sure that they were clear. This is to save babies' lives. You know, these are babies that are very close to term, if not full term on their birthdays, mm -hmm. sometimes after their birthdays that could be born alive. And we're just failing these families. I think a lot of people misunderstand. They think it's, oh, it's just a tragedy. It just happened and it might be something wrong with the baby genetically, but there's only like 10% of babies that have a genetic issue. The rest of them are potentially, you know, babies we could be saving. 25% are preventable now and almost half at like closer to the due date. So we do feel like this is an important issue that people in the general public may not understand. And that's why I'm very thankful for this awareness that we're doing today. I, love that. Thank you so I think much. I think also if I can just add, um, the bill is bipartisan, and we actually do have re uh, um, support from both the Democratic and Republican, and um, the both parties. And to be honest with you, this is not a, a bill about um, politics. Um, this is a bill to save babies. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it doesn't matter. Um, I think um, it's the fact that we are trying to help people, help families, mm -hmm. and um, to, to end preventable stillbirths. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Stacey. And Randy, how do, how do you cope? Because I know you guys are fairly new, just like Karina. How do, you, how do you cope as a dad losing your child? And do you have a support system with maybe your brothers, your uncles, any other man friends in your family? Do they understand? Do you like to talk about it? How do you cope with it? Um, yeah, none of my family <laughs> understands or have support system on that end. Um, but I do have like one or two really close guy friends. Um, one in particular, I can shout him out, but Isaac, he's like a really close friend of mine. And, um, when it all happened, he was very, like, he was one of the few that reached out. He allowed it to like, he like said, it's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And 
all that. But then like shortly after he was like, let's go for a walk. And then he just let me talk and let me share. And it was uncomfortable. And I know he was uncomfortable, but and he had nothing to say. And he said that he said, I don't have nothing to say to you, but like, that's tough. And thank you for like sharing that. And that was so huge. Like just, yeah, as a man, it's, it's hard to, I know for most men, it's hard to like be vulnerable and to share. Um, but just to be given permission to, even if they don't, that means the world. Like just to have somebody go, Hey, if you want to talk or I'm just going to be here. And if you're ready to talk, that's fine. If not, that's cool. Um, and then through other ways, like I got this tattoo on my hand for it says her name on it and it's a rose. And so I see it every day and just honoring her and remembering her in that way. And she'll be with me forever. So how I demoralize her in my skin too. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, and just praying as well. And, um, Jesus has helped me like crazy through this too and healing and through the word and through prayer. And yeah, it's been amazing. And Kim too, as well. And through this past year of being vulnerable with her being saying that I haven't been able to grieve and she's recognized like, okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not okay. So she's been giving me some grace with having bad days and um, being emotional. And as a man, that's yeah, not easy. So to show that emotion, but yeah, that's all. I love that. Thank you again for sharing for the, um, for the, for the father side. We really appreciate that you sharing. And I know you said, yes, I do have a question for Randy as well. Okay. So real quick, Randy, what would you tell another gentleman who is going through the same thing you went through or, or went through something that you went through? Because here's the thing I have spoken to many males and unfortunately they, they are scared. They are scared. They don't know how to share their story. They don't know how to come forward. So what would you tell them? And some of them are in a deep depression. So what would you tell those folks that are listening right now? Firstly, I want to say that you have permission to talk. You have permission to say um, whatever it is. Like you can say it's, it's, it's so messy. You can say whatever you is on your heart. Like this sucks. I don't get to do this. Like it's affected my marriage. Like um, I can't, I mean, I'm going to be vulnerable, but like um, in the marriage, like our sex life has taken a hit because I don't, like it, it brings me back to that and like brings me back to losing my daughter and like that's part of it and that's also like something vulnerable for men like that's something that you can't talk about you can't be not good in that front like that's like I you think know, it so. also comes down to like the thought of pregnancy after loss is very scary yeah. and you know that's it affects everything right um you know what Randy was referring to and like I think that's a huge part of it is that fear of, of going through this again and wanting another baby, but the fear of it happening again, um, and just processing, you know, trying again. Um, so yeah, yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. And for the men that are like scared to share, cause I was one of those too. make people uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> honestly, like it's okay. Like if they're going to ask you how you're doing, don't hold back make people uncomfortable. Like you have to get it out. And if you don't get it out in one way or another, whether people want to actually hear it or not, it helps you to get it out. And it, it actually shows strength in a man to be able to be vulnerable and share that type of stuff. So 
um, yeah, so I just want to <laughs> give permission to all men to be able to do that. I love that. And I'll pick it back off of what you said, Kim. When I got pregnant with my last daughter, it was three years after I lost Joss, Jossie Lee's. I didn't bond with her for the first trimester. I didn't want her because I was still grieving from the loss of my baby. But it took one time for her to turn her back at the ultrasound. Like, that's my baby right there. And that, that I started bonding with her. And she's my miracle. 2015, three years later, I had my miracle baby. So yeah, definitely. It is hard to, when you get pregnant again after a loss, it's very hard, devastating, devastating. Yeah. And I, I just, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, stillbirth doesn't just affect, you know, the, the pregnancy, the birth, and then it goes away. Um, you know, pregnancy after loss is just a huge issue in itself. Um, and, and even now parenting after loss, um, like I had mentioned, um, I have two young girls and I'm in constant worry that I'm, you know, not damaging them and, and, and hurting them and scaring them about death. Um, I do want to continue to keep Ryan a part of our family. And we talk about her as their older sister who's in heaven, um, you know, and they talk about her all the time. And we try to memorialize her and celebrate her birthday. Um, you know, a matter of fact, my five-year-old even draws her as a rainbow or a butterfly um, in her family photos, um, which is so touching to me. But mm -hmm. I also don't, I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And um, there are just so many aspects of stillbirth that will follow us until until we're dead. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, and the money that goes into mental health care and 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 being able to, you know, establish a support system for people throughout this journey, not just the people who have just dealt with the stillbirth, but from 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 that and, and on. Um, you know, I'm sure that once my girls are pregnant, it's going to be a whole new ball game for me. And I'm going to be freaking out, you know, um, when my girls are going to have their children. So, you know, that'll be yet another time in my life where my stillbirth has affected me traumatically. Great. Great. Well, that ends our roundtable discussion. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this panel. I thank you guys so much for being vulnerable, for being transparent, because I know it's not easy. It doesn't matter if we experienced it last month, like Karina and Randy and Kim, they experienced it last year. So I to commend you guys on just being vulnerable and sharing your story with us. And again, this is a safe place. We're here to support each other. So thank you so much for sharing. And we're going to have one of the closing remarks by our host, Gigi Sabat, and then we'll close out with prayer. Yes. Now, before we move to the closing statements, I do have a question for Kim. Kim, can you explain to us here in regards to the, the clapping, the nurses clapping when, when you're going to give birth to what you, what you all refer to as a dead baby. Can you please explain it to us? Because many people do not know. So can you, can you let the folks know what, what you would like to see change in regards to the nurses clapping when you all are going to deliver, again, what you refer to as a dead baby? Yeah, I mean, it was even the receptionist, right? I don't know how they would have possibly known, um, you know, that I showed up with, you know, my robe, my pillow, my big belly. And, um, 
yeah, I don't know how they would, the receptionists at least would have, would have known. Um, but yeah, that was definitely one of those traumas on top of traumas, um, with this whole experience, but, um, yeah, communication on the labor and delivery delivery floor for sure with the nurses. Um, I thought I heard someone sharing, maybe it was you Anna. um, you know, if there was a stillborn baby and parents in one of the rooms on the floor, they would put a little butterfly um, or a picture of a butterfly or a picture of something on the door so that any nurse going in knew that that was a room that was not happy. <laughs> um, there was a stillborn baby in that room and grieving parents in that room. Um, so things like that would be amazing on the floor so that the nurses um, aren't caught in that situation. Of course, as a mom, you're not going to you're not going to feel the strength usually to tell them in that moment, but they, it's important to know um, that not all babies um, end up being born alive. Yeah. I have that um, similar experience. Like you just mentioned, they put a little leaf on the outside of the door. Um, but I've heard so many stories. I actually interview people on my account and a lot of the women here actually shared their story. And I've heard so much trauma on trauma, like Kimberly mentioned, just from people not realizing, not even looking at the file. Like if you're pregnant again too, not looking at your file before you come in to make sure you say welcome, you know, they're gonna be say, oh, this is your first baby, you know, like they should already see that, you know, they should be aware and not just walk in on you like that. And it's a devastating place to be again inside of an office, you know, especially if you go to the same doctor. And so I think there's a lot we can do as far as just sensitivity training for people in those situations and not putting you on the floor possibly that other people are with their babies because I had to recover walking by rooms with babies crying you know I had a c-section so I had to walk and I had no baby my mom had to hold me up you know as I was walking around and I'm just like this is torture like hell on earth like Kimberly said earlier you know how can you put a mother through this and um, Camilla and I are starting to do rooms in Spanish on Clubhouse on the weekends and we heard the most horrific stories from around the world that we thought we had it bad. There's literally torture happening to women who have had a baby that dies on them. So we need to speak up for those women who don't have a voice in those countries too. And, you know, that's what we plan to continue to do with push as well. And all of the women that are speaking on social media now, it's not like it used to be, you don't have to be ashamed. There's stigma still, but we all know the facts and it's not your fault and you have a voice and you should definitely use it if you're feeling strong enough to do so. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I did. I think the only thing that my hospital had gotten and, and all coordinated with um, was that they actually had a white rose on both of our rooms and they put us in a, um, it was a whole other, other floor. There was actually three other stillbirths the day that it happened to me and we were on a floor all by ourselves. Um, but I think that that helped a lot. And we had a white rose outside the door. And I guess that just told people to ignore me because nobody ever came and saw me, but at least they knew and didn't ask, you know, where's the baby or this. So um, I did, I didn't know that. And my friend came to visit me and she said, did you know that you're the only room here that has a white flower on your door? And I didn't know that she sent me a picture of it, but I think that was helpful. And like I said, I mean, people didn't come in necessarily, um, but I think it helped that they know. And I think it should be more standard that every hospital has protocol like that. And that every hospital does this and every hospital that has a stillbirth puts the woman, I mean, I I don't care where it's at. I don't care if it's the surgery recovery room. I think any room would be better than, than a labor room. And that I can say they did for us. And um, it, it was just nice to be in a quiet hallway 
um, not listen, not hearing babies, no people coming in. Um, so I think that that definitely needs to be more standard too. that every hospital has the same protocol when, when women go in there and they go through something like this, cause it's not fair that some women have to go in there and see other babies and deal with some of the stuff that some of you ladies have dealt with. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. And at this time, I, I'd like to say thank you all for being here. Thank you to our speakers and our sponsors. And for the folks that are listening in today, I want you all to remember to treat others how you want to be treated. Some folks may not have gone through that situation, but just remembering to be kind and patient with others and asking, whether it be they, they're female or male, asking them, how are you? If you're aware of what they went through, how are you? And just being patient with that individual, understanding that they may have experienced or they, they did experience a traumatic experience. And so people experience different forms of trauma. And so just being kind to others is truly important. And always remember, no matter what you go through, to hold on to faith, God, higher power, Buddha, Allah, whomever you believe in. Never give up. And now in regards to the SHINE Act, as Stacy was talking about earlier, what she said was that it's, in, it's to improve the research and data to raise awareness about stillbirth. And again, what is stillbirth? Stillbirth is when the mother gives birth to a dead baby. That's the term that the, the, the women who go through this are referring to the baby as a dead baby. And so whatever you refer to it, the term that you utilize, we need to remember that that is what stillbirth is. They still have to go through the labor. They still have to give birth to this child. And that is very traumatic. And so I stand with each and every one of you today, every single woman, every single man as well who goes through this. And, and I, if you don't identify as male or female, whatever you identify as, I stand with you because I understand this is a traumatic experience for you. And again, I remind you to never give up because each and every single one of these women and men in this room today, we stand with you. Never give up. Thank you. Mary Heads. <clears throat> Father, in the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this day, Father, that you've made it. We're a silly majority today. We thank you, Father, for being with us on today, Father, giving us a voice to speak our truth, giving us a voice to share our story with the world, Father, that you created this platform for us to change one woman, one man at a time through stillbirth. We thank you, Father, for giving that to us on today. And for each and every family that was represented on this platform today, Father, we ask you to continue to bless them on today, Father. Continue to keep them encouraged, can keep, continue to strengthen them finally on their journey to sharing their story today. We thank you, Father, for the host, Regaline Gigi Sabat, that she puts people in the same space, Father, that topics that people don't even want to talk about. So we ask you right now to bless her, Father. Continue to be a blessing to us. Continue to allow us to use our voices on these platforms, Father, that you've given us. We give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all, and have a blessed night. Thank you.